The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Thank you, Chrissy. That was one of the songs I sent to my dad as he was dying. And it's funny, it's funny how songs will take you back in a moment. My dad's room was like a sanctuary. And as he was dying, when you would go in there, you just sensed the presence of the Lord. And that was one of the songs that ministered to him. Sorry, I knew that song was coming. I didn't know it was going to hit me like that. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this reality that Jesus is alive, that he has conquered the grave, and all that are in him are alive forever. We shall not want. And Lord, we do want in this life of us to let go, pry our fingers of all these things we so desperately cling to. Help us to see that Jesus alone is what we need. Be our all in all, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's try again. Let's look at Mark chapter 3. And I'll just say this as we're looking at this chapter. I came across something recently called the Superiority bias, maybe you've heard of this, it's similar to the superiority complex you study in psychology, but it's a little little different. But the idea of the superiority bias is that we all tend to grade ourselves a lot higher than, than we should. And so the superiority bias, for example, when it comes to driving skills, people were, were uh, surveyed, 93% said that they were uh, in the top 50%. And then when it came to safety and their driving, 88% said that they were in the top 50. When it came to um, rating themselves as to their teaching ability, um, 68% rated themselves in the top 25%. And 94% rated themselves as above average. And so we have this tendency that there's nobody that's below average because everybody that's tested, everybody ranks themselves in the t- over the 50% mark. And then, it, then when it gets most interesting is when it comes to virtue. And so this is from um, Ben Tappan and Ryan McKay's book, Social, Psychological, and Personality Science. They say virtually all individuals irrationally inflated their moral qualities the magnitude of their misjudgment was greater than that observed in other domains of self-enhancement. So if you think we have a superiority bias when it comes to driving and safety and our ability to listen, well, how about in these areas of honesty, truthfulness, courage, bravery, perseverance, commitment, compassion, respect, civility, wisdom, discernment, modesty, humility, diligence, Self-discipline, moderation, courtesy, consideration, cooperation, warmth, friendliness. Um, We're off the charts that we're all ranking ourselves 
much, much higher than other people. And so that's where you get this idea of the superiority bias. Well, I just mentioned that as we look through this text, often, where do you put yourself in the text? You know, where do you put yourself? Like when we talk about Levi, for example, that Jesus would call Levi, this despicable, contaminated, you know, this traitor turncoat. And we think, you know, I should really go to the Levi's in my life. And we forget that where we're at in the story. Where are we in the story? We are Levi. That is us. And if you think it's not you, then when you go to the Levi's, now you have this complex that now you're the savior. And now I have something I can give you, but I don't really need it myself because I'm better than you. But if we actually truly see ourselves as needy and broken, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, realizing that we're all a mess in our various different ways, that we're all filthy needing to be washed, then Levi's look a lot more like, he, praise God, I'm a Levi too, and he reached me. Well, the, the crowd, what you're going to see as we read this passage is the arrows. I want you to just notice We'll, we'll look at this idea, the crowd is getting bigger. And the crowd is a big word in the in first couple of chapters of Mark, actually all through, because there's a crowd that's following Jesus. But then you have these directional arrows of the in crowd and the out crowd. And the out crowd are the people that are typically the ones that you would never have any dealings with. And then there's the in crowd, the respectable, the Pharisees, the scribes. That's the in crowd. And Jesus has specific... He's, he's, he's just messing up all the arrows. And so just consider this as we read it. Mark, set, Mark, two beginning at, at Mark 3, beginning at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples by the sea, and a great crowd followed from seven different areas. Here they are, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and, and Sidon. Jesus has a big crowd. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Have you ever sat and thought about that verse? I mean, when you think of paparazzi and you think of Prince Harry and Prince William and they can't go anywhere and everybody's trying to, you know, follow them, shoot pictures. And, and now the disciples, these four disciples so far, now they got five you know, Matthew, or Levi is Matthew, you've got uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're now Secret Service. And the Secret Service, Marine One, is, is, is a boat. It's not a helicopter, it's a boat that's ready. And they're, they got a part, the, the whole crowd is just, you know, seven, eight, and nine just keeps mentioning the word the crowd. And so this great crowd is about to, could crush him. And they're just closing in on Jesus. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Barnegus, that is the sons of thunder, 
uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian or Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, You are my brother, my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here ends the reading of God's word. Now let's just back up for a moment and ask, come on, where are we in the Gospel of Mark? I mean, Jesus you know, everything's immediately, immediately, and he's just motoring through here, and he begins his public ministry by being baptized by the, at the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and he's immediately thrust into the wilderness, and he does battle with the devil and in temptation for 40 days. He comes through that, and he instantly comes on the scene, begins his public ministry, and declares the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. You can't declare there's a kingdom unless there's a king. And Jesus is showing us in every passage throughout Mark, and Mark is just putting the spotlight, he's the king of the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. And and so what we're seeing about this king is that the king has come on the scene, he's bringing in his kingdom, and he's bringing in the marginalized. He's bringing in the destitute, the downtrodden, the dirty, the helpless, the poor, the written off, the ordinary. The common people are being brought to Jesus, or Jesus is going to them. He's healing them and saving them. And they were the out crowd, and now they're the in crowd. But the in crowd is suddenly becoming the out crowd. The out crowd. And this is happening in the most shocking of ways. You see, um, the... If you were to say in Jesus' day, um, you know, if you were a good Jewish mother and you're raising a son, what do you want your son to be? You want him to be a good Pharisee or a scribe. You want him to be a good Jewish boy and you want to raise him so that he will be respectable, authoritative, influential, respected by everybody. That would mean we, we want him to be a scribe. We want him to be a teacher. We want him to be a Pharisee. And if, you're, and if it's a daughter, this is who I want my daughter to marry. I mean, that's what it would have been in that day and age. And so Jesus begins his ministry, and who does he go to? He goes to this fishing village, 
And he finds some fishermen, and two are casting their nets, and two are mending their nets, and Jesus calls them, follow me. His first four disciples are, they got soggy clothes, their hair is matted, they got hard hands shaking, hard hands, and and their hands smell like fish. These are not exactly knights, they're not dukes, and they're not squires. And they're certainly not scribes or Pharisees. They're not educated. They haven't been to the right schools. They're not influential. They're not white-collar. They are just ordinary fishermen. This is how he begins. And then, immediately, he's approached by a leper, and Luke tells us he's full of leprosy. That means it's full-blown. I mean, scary stuff. He's rotting of leprosy, and Jesus touches him. Hmm. Then, immediately, this paralytic gets lowered through the roof. And why does he get through the roof? Because the big word in Mark is crowd. And, and how big's the crowd in the house? You're going to get the guy in there through the... No! There's, oh, oh, think, think. Think Last Dance, Michael Jordan. Did you see it? How many of you all saw The Last Dance? Hopefully, I mean, some of you have seen it. And it's interesting about Michael Jordan's life. There's 10 episodes. It's kind of depressing, actually, because he's so kind of into himself a little bit. Sorry, Michael, but I mean, there's hardly any mention of his family or any mention of his children in whole 10 episodes. But there's one scene that just blew my mind when I watched it. And there's a camera in his hotel room, and it's around episode five or six. And he's sitting there, and he's smoking a cigar, and he's just relaxing, and he's reflecting. And he says to the guy who's with him, some reporter, I guess, and he just says, you have no idea what it's like when I open that door. And if you remember the scene, you know, all of the cameras following, all of a sudden he opens the door to his hotel room, and it is flies at the fair. It is bees on honey. And as soon as somebody, oh, Michael, and everybody just runs to Michael. He quickly gets in the elevator, and he gets down the elevator. And as soon as he gets off the elevator, just flocks of everybody running. Imagine that. And you just sit there, and you're thinking. And they show him walking into the Colosseum, and it's just everybody's just flocking around him just to get a sight, to touch him, to whatever. You're like, ah, I just, such compassion for Michael Jordan instantly of like, no wonder the guy retired a few times. You know, like, I, you'd want to retire too. Like, who could live like that? That's how Jesus lived. Is there's this crowd. Everywhere he goes, there's fans. And that's the first point of this. You know, you've got the fans, you've got fools, you've got family, and you've got followers. Which are you this morning? I mean, The fans are just kind of genuinely interested. Fans are the crowd that begins to follow Jesus because nobody speaks like this guy and nobody's doing what he's doing. Demons are coming out of people and leaving them and they're made whole. Shriveled hands made perfectly well instantly. Lepers immediately cleansed. Paralytic picks up his mat his bed, and he's carrying around his bed, and you can, you know, imagine how excited that guy, I mean, you're just like, 
You want to be where the action is. And there's people that just want to be fans when they see something great and things are going well. I mean, it's fun to be a fan. It's fun to be a fan when your team is doing well. It was really fun to be a Nationals fan when I actually knew the players' names, you know, until they, you know, until Peter Angelos won and they have no money and they just, and then Mr. Lerner's got no money to pay the players. And now it's, I don't even watch the Nationals. Like, who, I couldn't tell you three players on the team. It was fun being a fan. And now I get to watch them play, you know, for the Phillies and watch Dusty Baker on the Houston Astros. I mean, but they're gone, right? So fans are, we can be like fans, but then when things get hard, do we still want Jesus then if we're just a fan? And there's people that are just following Jesus. And we're told in 137 that Jesus has to change course with his ministry early on because everybody is looking for you. Everybody. And then in 145, we're told that people are coming to him from every quarter. And the place I just read, I mean, it just said seven different regions of the country. He's gathering all these people from different areas, and they're all following him. And now the, the disciples are now like having to like guard and protect him and even have a boat ready. And so now Jesus, in the midst of all this, of all of these people following him, he comes upon this guy named Levi. And we talked about this briefly, but I just want you to try to picture this in your mind, if you were, if you will. If you were an artist, and I'm not, I would love to see a, a beautiful rendition of this picture. Imagine, just imagine this incredible crowd that's pressing upon Jesus. And in the background of the picture, you have a, this paralytic, and he's carrying his bed but he's jumping up and down in the background, you know, because <laughs> I, I was paralyzed and I'm walking in this huge crowd. And this guy in the background is, is wonderfully been healed. And the crowd is pressing, but there's, it's a small road. And there's this thorn in the flesh that the road purposely narrows and it all narrows to one place because the tax booth, they know where to like bring the road together that everybody has to go through, you know, bring all the thorns and thistles and put them right there, but make them go through the tax booth as they go through. But so Jesus and his entourage, which is this big crowd, they have to make their way around this stinking tax booth. And when they get to this tax booth and you can see, you know, the disciples are pushing everybody away and Jesus is trying to teach, but then Jesus comes over to Levi the, the, the one that if you were to just say, okay, in the picture, you know, where's Waldo, you know, where's Lee, who would you least pick to go with you to be one of the 12? Because you've got this huge in crowd, you've got all these people following him, but Jesus chooses who's going to follow him. He doesn't choose his fans, but he chooses his followers. And so when he chooses, he goes to Levi and he says, follow me. And that, to me, is just one of the most, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, he's the most despised person in the crowd. He's the one that's most hated. He's the biggest thorn. He's the worst choice for the disciple. He's the despicable me. And Jesus says the despicable me is like you and me. Follow me. And so he follows. And so then we're told who the followers are. And so we're given a picture. Jesus goes up on a mountain, 13 and 19, and he decides... He calls to him those whom he desired, those who he willed. He makes the followers. He chooses who's going to follow him. 
And who does he choose of these 12 people? Do we get anything that says he went for the people that got over 1,500 on their SAT and over 140 on their IQ? Do you see that in any of them? And they ran a mile in four minutes. They could do 90 push-ups in 60 seconds. They could bench press twice their weight. They had noble blood. They were born in a palace. Does it say anything about any of those things of these people? No, we're told about them rather. James and John are called sons of thunder because of their thunderous tempers. We were reminded in Sunday school that when they came upon the Samaritans and the Samaritans were rejecting them, they said, oh, gee, hey, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? Like, take care of this, Jesus. That's who the sons of thunder were. They were very passionate, but they were also quick-tempered. Peter, we know, was impulsive. Matthew is a tax collector, which means he's a turncoat trader. And he, I would just love to see him in a huddle in a prayer group with Simon the Zealot. I mean, wouldn't that have just, I would just love to have been there the first time these two meet each other. Because, do you know what a zealot is? I mean, these are radical fringe group of people. Violence was a legit means. They were patriots on steroids. And their job was to get rid of the oppressors in Rome, particularly those who were taxing, overtaxing the people. I mean, they would have had news for the Proud Boys that they need to step up their game, is what a, what a zealot would say, okay? And so here is Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Hey, I want you guys to do a little prayer together, you know, put you together it's in a small group together. <laughs> Boy, I'd love to have been there for that. But God just changed these people. These are his 12 disciples. And what are we reminded? We're told in Corinthians, just consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, or it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who's become to us our wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's all him. And so we get a picture of these followers, we're seeing who the fans are, but then we get a picture of the fools. And the fools are sadly the people that everybody thought you wanted to raise your child to be. It was the Pharisees and the scribes. So if you look back at, at 2.16, we see these, the ones asking the questions... And they're, they're not great questions. They're kind of like mad at Jesus kind of questions. In 2.16, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes of the, of the Pharisees, they want to know, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then in 2.18, we see it's the Pharisees again. And they say, why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then in 2.24, it's the Pharisees again who are saying, Lord, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They have a bone to pick with Jesus. And in 3.6, the Pharisees went out. There's some really important words, and the word out is a big one because it's giving you a directional arrow. They went out, and now they're going to go conspire to kill him. So here's the inside crowd, supposedly, and now they're on the out. Okay? 
And if you don't think it's a big word, I mean, when you get to the end of the chapter and you start to, when he gets to his, the shock is going to be his mother and brothers. That's where we're going with this. But you have insiders and you have outsiders. And now the Pharisees have gone out. And the followers, the ones who, they're the ones who are with him, right? The paralytics become an insider. The lepers become an insider. Levi's become an insider. But the Pharisees and the scribes are, are now outsiders, launching questions as outsiders. And they have an argument. The scribes come up with this argument, and, they, and they've come down from Jerusalem. Verse 22, that's the prominent place. That's the important place. They've come down from, from Jerusalem, and they're on a mission. And their mission is they're saying he's possessed by Behelzebel, the prince of demons. That's their argument. And what Jesus says to them, and this is, he says this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is the unforgivable sin. And I know that gets people really scared. They think, well, have I, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? The unpardonable sin the unforgivable sin is, des is described for us here, okay? And it's ascribing to the devil what you know to be the work of God. These people, it's so obvious that this is the work of God, and yet you are so hardened in your unbelief that the only way that you can come up with an explanation is to say it's of the devil. And if you do that, what Jesus is saying is you are so hardened in your unbelief, you have so slammed the door that you're beyond hope because you are determined and blinded, so willfully blinded that you are clearly seeing something as the work of God and ascribing it to the devil. And Jesus refutes their arguments by saying, look, the devil doesn't cast out the devil. That's, that's stupidity. A house doesn't divide against itself to win a victory. Like, Satan isn't doing this. And then he makes this bold claim. He says, no one can enter, verse 27, a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Every text is declaring that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. You just got to figure out what, what it is. How does this mean he's the king of the kingdom? He's clearly saying, I'm stronger than the devil. And all of you, by nature, are under the prince of the power of the air, and you're under the devil. And Jesus has to go and bind the strong man to plunder the, the house, and the house is where we were in bondage to. And so what Jesus is claiming as deity, as God, is I can take people from the clutches of the devil and make them my own. He's claiming all authority. He's claiming power. And this is just reminder, like bigger picture. What does the Bible say about us in relation to the devil? Well, it says things like that by nature we are children of wrath who follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived, carrying out the lust of the flesh, carrying them out in the body and the mind, and that's saying we're under the, the prince of the power of the air and that we're dead in trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And so pursuing lust and just headlong selfishness, the Bible says you're following the prince of the air. 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Just blinded them. They can't see. To keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. But the, the gospel, as it's being proclaimed, 
Paul says, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus is Lord, with ourselves as his servants for Jesus' sakes. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that creation has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is being born again? What is coming to faith in Jesus? It's God turning on the lights that were dead when just at creation, God could say, let there be light and there's light. That's what he did in our hearts. He said, let there be light. And he has to regenerate and give light because people are blinded by the God of this world and God has to turn on the light so that they all of a sudden see the glory of God is Jesus and that Jesus is the Savior and who's God in the flesh and he's come to save my soul. And then 2 Timothy 2, when it's talking about arguments and it, he, Lord's servant, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, but we need that verse today. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So these people that are really argumentative and have to just quarrel all the time, Paul is saying they've been captured by the devil to do his will. And that the Lord's servant is not to play on that ball field, but to be gentle, not quarrelsome, trusting that God may lead some to repentance and that they would come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. And then we're told in 1 John 5, 18 to 21, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who's been born of God protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here's a verse you just read right over. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know him who, know him who is true, and we're in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so becoming a Christian, being born again, is not primarily an intellectual ascent or a one-time prayer that you pray, even though it, it does involve both of those things. It's a change of kingdoms. You were once in darkness, serving the God of this world, the prince of, the dark, of darkness, who blinds the minds of the unbelievers, who we served our flesh, we pursued our lust, and now we come to Christ, and Christ plunders the house, brings his people to himself, and we're just told, like Colossians 1.13, that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he sends out Paul to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, is what the Lord says. So have you experienced that? Have, your, have the scales come off of your eyes so that you see that Jesus is better than anything else that this world has to offer? That Jesus is what you need, that he's an all-sufficient Savior, and have you been born again? Because that's what Jesus has come to do. And then we get this last big twist that we go from these fools that are just blind and they can't see it and they actually ascribe the work to the devil. But then we turn to family. 
And that's probably the biggest shocker here because we make a big deal about family. I mean, we have ministries called Focus on the Family. And family is important. Family first. And Jesus actually refers to his family, his people who do his will, as more important than his own mother and his brother. And so as you follow this, you're seeing in verse 20 and 21, this crowd is gathering around Jesus so much so that he can't even eat. He can't even get inside his house. So his family has to come out. And so when you get to verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. Okay? For they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, some of you have heard and maybe been a part of a family intervention. A family intervention is when a loved one is so into something that's so terrible, whether it's drugs or an addiction or alcohol or gambling, that you gather all the family members together and you bring them together for a family intervention. And the goal of the family intervention is for each of them to share how important this person is to them and how much damage they're doing to themselves and how they need to go to the detox whatever they need to get help, and that we've already made arrangements for it to happen, and we will all stand with you and support you, but we, you must do this because your life is at stake. Now we're seeing, that, I mean, this is family intervention of Jesus. His whole family has come together, mama included. And this is really amazing. I would love to get a Roman Catholic understanding of how in the because Mary is painted how many times does it say mother in the text in chapter 3 I mean in 31 it's in 33 it's in 34 and in his family's mentioned in 21 I mean it's the mother and the brothers they've come together that Jesus is lost his marbles he's off his rocker he's out of his mind and we've got to seize him arrest him control him take over is the word. Okay, we've got to just do, we've got to do something radical intervention because Jesus has lost it. And so they're out, to, they're going after Jesus and, and there's the arrows. The arrows. You think, well, certainly, I mean, sometimes you'll meet somebody and they meet me as a pastor and they say, oh yeah, my, my grandfather was a pastor. My, my second cousin was uh, part of a church, you know, or, you know, they, they'll start throwing out these connections. You know, I've, I've got a brother-in-law that goes to a Presbyterian church. You know, they'll, they'll throw out anything to, like, have some attachment to, like, you know, and it's always kind of humorous as to, okay, well, that's... <laughs> And do you think this morning because, you know, your dad's a Christian or your grandfather was a pastor or you're, you're a covenant child, you've been baptized, you, you're, you're, you're an officer in the church or an elder or deacon, I mean, would Jesus, I mean, these are the people, this is his mother. These are his brothers. And Jesus is saying, they're not my true brothers. My family are those who do the will of God. It's shocking how Jesus is turning the arrows around because certainly you would say, that's the in crowd. And Jesus is saying, no, that's actually the out crowd. Because how does it end? Look at, look at how Mark is wanting you to see this. Verse 31, his mother and brothers came and standing outside, big word, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. There's the in crowd. 
And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are where? Help me. Outside. Outside. The directional arrows, the problem. Okay, you got the out, the outside, and you have a round. And once again, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother. So what are you looking to today to be part of the family of God? Is it anything to do with your pedigree? Anything to do with your education? Anything to do with, you know, how special you think you are? Or is it this? But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Have you been born of God? You see, Jesus comes and he's bringing his kingdom and he brings it into hearts right here. He changes hearts and he causes them to be born of God that they would believe in him and rest and believe in his name. That's the only way of salvation. It isn't any of these other ways. And so these people are left frustrated. His brothers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the inside people, it doesn't make sense. But the people that are poor, the ones that are needy, the ones that, are, that come to Jesus and, and cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is pleased to have mercy. Have you cried out to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the king of glory, you're the king of grace, yet you humbled yourself and came and walked this earth and walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, and went to a cross and stayed on that cross for sinners like us. We thank you that it is finished we thank you that life is found there at the cross. And we come today like the thief, saying, remember me when you enter into your glory. Lord, you are worthy, and we are not. We thank you that you loved and still love people like us. Change us, we pray, and help us, Lord, to have the right directional arrows in loving outsiders, to bring them in as you did, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.